0: following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. This week, Pastor Andrew is going to teach us the Bible, Um, but first we have a, a video introducing kind of the main idea of what he'll be talking about to us today. Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Andrew, one of the pastors here, and I'm good morning. And uh, as this is Fifth Sunday, we would normally be answering a question drawn from those asked by our children in their discipleship classes. However, since we are in the midst of this, our study of the book of Hebrews, Vince does not want us to leave our discussion there. So I hopefully will be explaining one of our next next section of Hebrews as if one of the children asked the following question. Why do we even need a sacrifice like Jesus? Why can't God just forgive us like we're supposed to forgive each other? This, I hope you see is a simple but profound question, one that plagues the philosophies and the mentalities of many people around us. Perhaps you have also wondered why God requires sacrifice, that is death, as part of how sin is forgiven. My aim is to explain why. Now, I have been accused a few times today of speaking too long on occasions, so I have scripted out exactly what I'm saying today. There you go. And I am sometimes told that I use words that you need to consult the dictionary or internet to understand. I hope you will allow me to explain each of my terms I'm going to use in my outline for the benefit of those, both children and adults, who do not seem to know all of my big fancy words. Okay. So let us read our passage together. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for divine worship in the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was equipped, the outer sanctuary, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle in which is called the most holy place having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna Aaron's staff which budded the tables of the covenants or the covenant uh, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat but about these things we cannot now speak in detail now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol of For the present time. But accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshipper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food, drink, and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things having come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and cows, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place for once, for all time, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkled those sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God." Now, for those of you who take notes, the sermon will have five A's and then two CR's. Let's take the verses a few at a time. Are you going to come help me? Okay. First, we see the apparatus of the first covenant. The apparatus of the first of the first covenant. I'm going to read the verses again. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for divine worship in the early, early, earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was equipped, the outer sanctuary, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread, which is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, In which was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's staff, which budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But about these things we cannot now speak in detail. An apparatus is a system or organization of activities or functions directed toward a specific goal. Pastor Vince discussed some of these components. (laughs) That last week, but for the sake of those who were not here, let me repeat them. The instructions for the building of the tabernacle are found at the end of Exodus in chapters 25 through 40. What we need to be concerned with here is the very clear visual reminder of separation. The tabernacle itself is surrounded by a courtyard whose wall was five cubits high, and that translates to at least seven feet tall, while the tent containing the holy place and the Ark of the Covenant was 10 cubits tall, so 14 feet tall. Now, when you entered into the courtyard, you would have to walk 40 feet before you could reach the altar of burnt offering where you made your sacrifice. And then the front of the holy tent was another 46 feet away. My point is that the tabernacle's design is to communicate visually that you cannot approach God. You and your sin must remain away at all times. Only priests of the tribe of Levi, properly trained and properly prepared, would even dare to enter the holy place. In this way, the first covenant functioned more like a contract, in which proper performance and strict judgment ensure the full and complete repayment of any and every debt owed between the two members of the agreement. Do you want me to hold you? Hi. (laughs) However, as we see in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, if that first covenant had been free of fault, no circumstances would have been sought for a second. The problem was that fault was found in us. As the video said, we broke the covenant. We broke the covenant all the time. We were unable to keep the commandments to begin with. Thus, in the covenant, the need for a tabernacle and an altar on which we could repay through sacrifice our sins. But that was not enough, and it wasn't the end of the problem. Second, we see the application of the first covenant the application of the first covenant, starting in verse 6. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, offering the divine worship, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which is offered for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. By application, I mean the putting up, the act of putting something to use. Notice the language in the verse. Continually entering the outer sanctuary. Yes, outer tabernacle, excuse me. We did not once forget, mess up, and disobey a commandment. We kept on disobeying every single commandment. Just think about how many sacrifices that means for each and individual one of us. We needed to go back up to the tabernacle day after day, maybe even more than once a day, just to keep our sin account paid off with sacrifices. But the final settling up with God, it appears, took place only once a year. Some who have studied the Bible think that the daily sacrifices merely transferred our sin from the one who sinned onto the tabernacle apparatus, a transfer of the debt that the Day of Atonement would finally pay off in the most holy place before God follow my thinking. You, the human, would sin. That sin would first be transferred onto the animal sacrifice who is taking your place in dying for that sin for the violation of God's commandments. Then the priest, acting as God's representative, transfers the guilt, the penalty, and the justice due for that sin onto the tabernacle like a ledger of you paying off part of your debts. Then, on the day of atonement, once a year, the high priest takes the ledger of all of the sins of all of the people, including his own sin, and as we see in verse 7, for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. That is, for sins that didn't get a sacrifice because we didn't even remember that we sinned. Either because we didn't know the command or because we didn't care about the sin. The high priest takes all of that sin for the year into the most holy place. And the understanding is in front of God, who is sitting on the Ark of the Covenant, he asks for mercy at the mercy seat. Because all of the sacrifices, all of the prayers, all of the apparatus of the tabernacle was still not enough to forgive the sins of each person, much less the sins of all the people. Every year we would have to go back, and every year we would hope that the high priest did his job correctly, What if he messed it up? What if the ledger doesn't get paid off? What if the ledger never gets paid off? Third, we see the apparition of the new covenant. The apparition of the new covenant. Verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle, and some translations say the first tabernacle, is still standing, which is a symbol of the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food, drink, and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. An apparatus is an act of appearing, or anything that appears, especially something remarkable or startling. We learn in Galatians 3, verse 23 through 24, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. The first covenant, as it came to how we were able to fulfill it as much as we did, became, like I said before, a contract. Under what philosopher Paul Ricoeur calls the logic of equivalence, we were trapped, imprisoned, bound by the law, needing to pay the debts in full, but we could not pay. But God, full of mercy, had not only made the first covenant as a tutor to show us that we could not pay, he made the new covenant as the means by which the debt could be paid. Because, as we see in verses 9 and 10, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, for they relate only to food, drink, and outer washings, regulations for the body. That is, the outward obedience, bodily part of being in God's presence and under his kingdom. But what we ultimately needed is a time of reformation, the verse says, That is an inward transformation of who we are, sinners separated from our Creator into who God intends us to be and intended us to be children in relationship with our Creator. Sin is a little bit like spilling black paint on white carpets. You need to clean it up, but everything you do just spreads the sin around. You just transfer it from one place to another. And eventually, even the water you're using is itself too dirty to clean. And now it also makes the carpet stained. In such a circumstance... We need someone who can remove the stain itself and the effects on everything else that stain touched. We need to be transformed from the core of who we are. Obedience and sacrifice can never do that. The first covenant and the earthly apparatus and all those who are weighed down by the burden of sin must then ask, how can we be transformed? Fourth, we see the appearing of the new covenant. Now, when, verse 11, Now when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things having come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, that is, not of this creation. I don't think I need to define appearing So let me introduce a new term that I will have to define. The term is hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is the union of Christ's humanity and his divinity in one individual existence. That is that Jesus is fully God and fully man all the time in his incarnation. Andrew Hebert has said, quote, An implication of the hypostatic union is that Jesus can represent God as God to man, and man as man to God. That is, in the incarnation, we see God, but God sees all of humanity. In this way, Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Ultimate meaning final, but also ultimate meaning conclusive. We should expect no other sacrifices, no other high priest, no other temples or tabernacles or apparatus, because no other is ever needed again. Now, we need also to see the word play here in Hebrews. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, that is, not of this creation. Here, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the human body of Christ. That is, that in Christ's hypostatic union, in Christ being fully God and fully man, in Christ. God is dwelling or tabernacling with us humans as a human. The first tabernacle is God sitting on the mercy seat, separated from us by two curtains, and now we can touch God. Let me quote here from Athanasius famed defender of Christ's divinity at the Council of Nicaea. He was 27 years old at the time. So you young people, better start, (laughs) know your doctrine. Okay. From his later work on the Incarnation, section 20. Quote, We have spoken above in part as far as was possible and as far as we were able to understand the cause of his bodily manifestation, that it was not for another To turn what is corruptible into incorruptibility, except the Savior himself, who in the beginning created the universe from nothing. And that it was not for another to recreate again the in the image of God for human beings, except the image of the Father. And it was not for another to raise up the mortal to be immortal, except our Lord Jesus Christ, who is life itself. And it was not for another to teach about the Father and destroy the worship of idols, except the word who arranges all things and is alone the truly only begotten Son of the Father. But since what was required from all still had to be rendered for this reason, he now offered the sacrifice on behalf of all "'delivering his own temple to death in the stead of all "'in order to make all not liable "'but free from the ancient transgression "'and to show himself superior to death, "'displaying his own body as incorruptible, "'the firstfruits of the universal resurrection. "'Therefore the body, as it had the common substance "'of all bodies, was a human body.' Yet, by the coming of the word into it, it was no longer corruptible in its own nature, but because of the indwelling word of God, it became immune from corruption. And thus, it happened that both both things occurred together in a paradoxical manner. The death of all was accomplished in the Lord's body, and also death and corruption were destroyed by the word of God in it. For there was need of death, and death on behalf of all had to take place, so what was required by all might occur. But why was death required? And why was death for all needed? Why did the first covenant require blood for sin? Time is brief, but let us go back to the beginning, to the garden where it all begins. In the video we watched, we learned about the four covenants that God made with humans through Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Israel, and finally with David and his family. We saw that humanity broke all of these covenants, but Jesus came to restore them. But the problem existed before even all of the covenants. Noah and his family were saved from the flood because corruption had already entered the world and contaminated everything. The problem started with the sin in the garden where humans, starting with Adam, broke God's law and rebelled against God's authority. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, God tells Adam, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, many people around us will notice that in Genesis 3, the very next chapter, when Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, they do not die, but instead are simply expelled from the garden. But notice that everything does start to die. For my Lord of the Rings fans, when the light leaves Arwen, she begins to die even though she does not immediately die. Adam and Eve are sent away from the tree of life and they begin to die. The earth and all of the animals represented by the serpents are also condemned to die. Even though, apart from the serpent, none of the rest of creation had rejected God's law and authority. You and I, our sin corrupted, even those that had not sinned. To put it simply, because of Adam... Because of us, everything, everything in creation began to die. Death was already a consequence of our sin. When God renewed that covenant of creation with Noah in Genesis chapter 9 verses 4 through 5, God tells humanity that... You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For certainly I will require your blood of your lives, and from every animal I will also require it. From every person, from every man as his brother, I will require the life of a person. You see, blood represents life, and sin represents, Requires death of the one who caused the sin. So, the corruption of the world that caused animals to kill humans, that causes humans to kill humans, that causes humans to continue to reject God, requires the repayment in the form of blood, that is, in the form of death. The tabernacle is then, again, a teacher. Our sin requires death because death is the consequence, as Romans would say, the wages, what we have earned because of sin. Just like Adam and Eve, we are cut off from the source of life, that is, God, and only repayment, death for sin, can enable us to be restored to God. As Athanasius wrote, God had to enter into our created world as a human to reconnect humanity back to the source of life that is himself and then pay the penalty that the sacrifices of animals, because they are not the sinful humans, and the prayers and good wishes and thoughts and love and feelings and goodwill cannot repay. Which leads us to the final A, fifth. We see the apogee of the new covenant. The apogee of the new covenant. Verse 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to, live, to serve the living God? Apogee is a term borrowed from astronomy, and it means the highest, most distant point of an orbit, the climax of something. So now let me quote from another church father, John of Damascus, who writes in his work, An Exact Exposition of the Orthodox Faith, section 84, quote, So then, every act and miracle of Christ was great and divine and wonderful, but the most wonderful of all is his precious cross. For by nothing else was Death abolished, was the sin of our first ancestor absolved, was Hades, despo- Hades despoiled, was the resurrection granted, was the power given to us despise the things of this world and death itself, was the return to our original blessing- blessedness achieved, were the gates of paradise opened, was our nature seated with the right hand of God, did we become children and heirs of God except by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ." For it was by the cross that all these things were accomplished. The blood of animals in the first covenant was the lesson to us, a visual, visceral reminder that we needed to die for our sins. The sacrifices were also teaching us, starting with Isaac and the ram at Mount Moriah, that God would substitute another for us in the dying for our sin. That ultimate Final, conclusive substitute was God in Christ Jesus on the cross. Now to the two CRs. First, in Christ we have complete restoration. Complete restoration. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we see that Jesus, as then quote continues, when he had made purification of sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. End quote. He not not only was the redemption completed as in historically ended, it is also continuing. That is, having obtained eternal redemption, as in futuristically begun, right, is not for the Christians simply a convention that we start history's enumeration with Jesus. He is the end of the old world, he is the beginning of the new world. The first covenant also cleanses our outside, sorry, the first covenant only cleansed our outside, that is, the cleansing of the flesh. But the new covenant in Christ cleanses us all the way down to our inside, cleansing even our conscience. Second, in Christ, we have comprehensive renewal, comprehensive renewal. That is, cleansed to, quote, serve the living God, end quote. Through Christ, we get a new master. This we call redemption. A new life. This we call regeneration. A new way. This is what we call conversion. A new kingdom. This is what we call restoration. A new status. This is what we call justification. A new family. This is what we call adoption. A new identity. This is what we call union with God. A new love. This is what we call sanctification. A new certainty, this is what we call perseverance. And a new destiny, this we call glorification. There is nothing remaining that is not affected by the cross and the sacrifice of Christ. Just like there was nothing that was not affected by the sin of humans, there is nothing that is not affected by the cost of Christ. This is why Romans calls Christ the second Adam. <clears throat> the earth is being renewed into a new creation the life of creatures are being restored so that Isaiah 11 verse 6 can promise that the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion will live together. We as humans are being restored to each other through the grace of reconciliation, which empowers us to forgive without sacrifice as we have been forgiven with the sacrifice of Christ because we need no further sacrifice in order to forgive. We humans are also being restored to God, transformed in the resurrection to the life incorruptible so that we can dwell with our creator untainted by sin and unhindered by shame or by guilt, restored to him and he to us as it was in the beginning. This, this is why we need a sacrifice like Jesus. And this, this is why God can't just forgive us like we forgive each other. We can't forgive each other until he forgives us first. The repayment of the debt, the settling up that we offer to each other is insufficient in the economy of God. Instead of the logic of equivalence, God operates according to the logic of superabundance. He doesn't just pay us back. He pays us more in the covenant. He wants relationship, not just repayment. He wants blessing, not just balancing of some cosmic account. If God just forgave us, we would still be under the first covenant, We would still be in the body of sin, contaminated and caught, trapped in the world, contaminated and caught by sin. Still left separated from life and living separated from everything in creation. No. Instead, God wants restoration, symbolized by the removing of the veil that separates us from him. We, God and us cannot live in the world of the tabernacle for any longer. So God removed the barrier, which is sin and its consequence death, and reconnected us through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. So let us now pray, and then through communion, celebrate. Dearest Father, we thank you, holy God, who despite your absolute eternal holiness, loved us enough to give us covenants. You knew in the infinity of your knowledge that we would never, never, never fulfill any of the promises that we made to you you knew that you would have to take our place in the economy of the covenants that you were making with us. And so in each and every covenant that you made with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses and Israel, with David, you knew that there would still be a new covenant in which you would fulfill all that was required before and so much more. We knew You knew, oh God, that we would need you, Jesus our Lord, to dwell with us, tabernacle with us as a human, to live the perfect life that we were never going to succeed at, and then die the death that we all were required to pay. And we thank you, God, that you have offered us forgiveness, through the sacrifice of Christ, and that by your Spirit, you will enlighten and illuminate even the deepest part of us and transform us into the beings of your new creation, the ones who will dwell with you forever. For this we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio.